WFMP, Coon Rapids, St. Paul, Minneapolis. Food, I am so sorry that I never deigned to thank you for all. It's time for Dishing Up Nutrition with licensed nutritionist Darlene Kavist. Each week, Darlene explains the connection between what you eat and how you feel. Stay tuned to hear practical, real-life solutions for healthier living through good nutrition. Dishing Up Nutrition is brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. Well, welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition, brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness, a company specializing in therapeutic nutrition counseling. I'm Darlene Kavis, licensed nutritionist, and thank you for listening and thank you for telling your friends and family about Dishing Up Nutrition. You know, here are some startling facts. In the U.S., we are now seeing an epidemic of obese six-month-old babies. You know, this study was reported in Obesity 2006. Think of that. Six-month-old babies are now obese, and not just one or two babies, but an epidemic of obese babies. So, you know, today, you know, stay tuned because we have a lot of very interesting and kind of rather shocking information to share, and a lot of research also to share. So joining me today as our co-host is Cara Carper. Cara has her master's degree in holistic health, sees clients in Wyzetta, Woodbury, St. Paul. And Cara, here is another interesting fact. If a person drinks one 12-ounce can of soda a day, they can gain 15 pounds in one year. Think of that. If you do if you do two cans a day, you can gain thirty pounds in one year. Unbelievable. It is. <laughs> but even more shocking, Dar, if you drink a big gulp daily, and that's forty four ounces of soda, you can actually gain fifty seven pounds in one year. Isn't that amazing? For forty four ounce soda every day. Yes. So, you know, you might ask, why are so many babies that I was talking about obese today, and many of the babies' formulas contain up to 50% sugar, and more than 30% of that formula is often high fructose corn syrup. And when we take in high fructose corn syrup, our bodies turn it into body fat, and even obese, even babies can get obese. Isn't that a, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? Yeah, I don't remember hearing about that, you know, 10, 20 years ago. No. This is a new epidemic. It is. Well, and speaking of soda, soda not only makes people gain body fat, but it also sets us up to wanting another one and another one. And we call that the I can't stop with just one syndrome. So whether it's a soda, a cookie, or one glass of wine, You know, it's in the chemical dependency world, we call that addiction. You know, we feel kind of out of control. We just can't stop with one. You know, it's truly an addiction. You know, we've wanted to explore the addiction that people have to soda, chips, cookies, and other refined foods. So we're really pleased to welcome an expert in this field of refined food addiction. And we, I think, have Joan Iflin on the line who is the founder of the Refined Food Addiction Research Foundation. And I was so pleased to attend her presentation at the American College of Nutrition. It was the 50th annual conference this past October. 
And so, Joan, welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition. I know you've been interested in refined food addiction for many years. Welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're hoping to accomplish by having a refined food addiction as looked at as and recognized as a real disease. Well, thank you, Dora. I well, am thank so you. We're so glad here. you're on the line. Yes. <laughs> we never know if it's going to work. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm here. I'm, I'm certainly here. I've been looking forward to this since I met you. <laughs> well, um, this is great. Thank you for being on with us today. Yes, I'm delighted. I think that the the main goal of the research and the public awareness is for people to have the right information to go through a withdrawal and see if their cravings go away, if the brain fog goes away, if the fatigue goes away, and give them a chance to experience life without refined foods in their system. It is, it's a marvelous experience. It's delightful. It's, uh, it's exhilarating. It's thrilling. It's like winning the lottery <laughs> when all these refined food-related conditions just start disappearing, things that we thought were genetic or that we were going to have our whole lives. They just start evaporating. So my goal is to have everybody at least have the chance to have this marvelous experience. So I know we see this, don't we, Cara? Every, you know, all the time when our clients, often when they come back after two weeks, they just feel like they're new people, mm-hmm. don't they? They are. Yeah, and I think people have to give themselves a chance, too. You know, it, it might not be one day or two days. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a four-day withdrawal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's something that I really like talking about because it is a withdrawal. And there are distress symptoms. There's headache, there's stomachache, there's disorientation, there are intense cravings. And I think if people knew that it was a four-day withdrawal, they would hang in. Yes. But by the time they get to day two or three, and certainly by day four, and day four is the worst day, they are ready to give up. But I think if they knew it was four days, Mm -hmm. just out of curiosity, they would hang in there. And also, if they knew that they could buffer some of those withdrawal symptoms with fruit, mm-hmm. they would be able to hang in until that marvelous third or fourth or fifth day when they, when they sort of pop through the brain fog and the fatigue and the cravings go away. So, Joan, when you're thinking and talking about refined foods, you know, maybe just give listeners what you, some of the things that you pop right into your brain. Okay, well, the first thing is to know, I think that there is very strong evidence for six classes of refined foods. And, so, and I do, we have a bit of early evidence that when they are combined, they are more addictive. So the six classes are sugar and sweeteners. Flour. Well, so now, sugar and sweeteners. Let's just talk about sweeteners. Okay. So you mean, um, what, what do you mean, well, I use that term so that people don't think that I'm just talking about sugar. Uh, there are about a hundred different forms of sweeteners on the market today. So we're talking about mannitol and sorbitol and dextrose and maltodextrose. And we're talking about evaporated cane juice and, and of course, high fructose corn syrup. I was very glad to hear you talking about that. 
as well as sugar and raw sugar and brown sugar and molasses. And what about sugar alcohols? Absolutely. I mean, they're all sweeteners. And the, the good analogy here is suppose you have somebody who's coming off of beer or alcohol. They, they're, they've, they've become an alcoholic and they need to abstain. Mm-hmm. Well, addiction counselors adamantly do not recommend near beer or, you know, non-alcoholic wine for that population because it does activate the addictive pathways in the brain. Yes. So any kind of an association, any kind of of close conditioning, I mean, it's the same reason we don't send alcoholics into bars. Even mm-hmm. if they were drinking water, there, there are place triggers. Oh, so yeah. we... We really feel, I feel strongly, and, and there's good evidence for this, that a person needs to really look at the whole spectrum of any kind of sweetener, anything that's been condensed. And some people need to also look at the high-sugar f- fruits. Mm-hmm. Uh, banana, people lose control over bananas and papayas and grapes and cherries. So there are degrees of safety in this, in this recovery program. And I call it playing near the edge of the cliff because we don't want to relapse. We don't want to activate those addictive pathways. So the further away we can get from the edge of the cliff, the further we can stay away from relapse, the more successful our programs are going to be. So, Joan, when we're talking about sugars again, because, you know, you see all the, you know, we keep getting the message out there in the media that diet pop is just fine. No, uh, well... There is um, there's a great study done by a researcher in France where he got rats addicted to cocaine, to sugar, and to saccharin. And then he, put, he gave them a choice. And so they chose the sugar over the cocaine, which you might expect because that has caloric content. Mm-hmm. They also chose the saccharin over the cocaine. Okay. Now, we have a combination uh, in sodas. We have a combination of caffeine and a sweetener. So, uh, again, there is great, there's a growing body of evidence for the, the premise that poly addictions are more difficult to turn around than if somebody's addicted to just one substance. And you see this in classic addictions. You see alcoholics also smoke. Mm-hmm. Or yes, alcoholics definitely. also use cocaine, or smokers use uh, caffeine. So they're using addictive substances in combination, and what they're doing is they're simply activating a greater range of the pleasure pathways in the brain. So that's um, that's sort of the neurochemical basis for polysubstance abuse. So if you take a cookie, for example, it has a sweetener in it, it has flour in it, it might have butter or sour cream, which is dairy. It, if it's chocolate, it has caffeine. It will have salt in it. And, of course, it has fat. So those are, those are all six of the <laughs> addictive classes of food. In one food item well, there. <laughs> and a little, bit, a little study that we've done here at the foundation shows that cookies are the, most, are the food most often chosen in addictive behavior. Oh, I can believe that. Mm-hmm. And who can stop with one cookie? Yes. Well, you're on to one of the, con- one of the, the ways we, we assess 
food addiction. And one of the seven methods for assessing addictions developed by the American Psychiatric Association and published in their diagnostic manual is unintended use. So you you just hit the one of the greatest unintended uses on that. <laughs> you open that box, you're going to have two, and pretty soon mm-hmm. the box is gone. Yes. Joan, you know what? We have to take a quick break here. but we'll. Uh, so you're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition, brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness, a company specializing in life-changing nutrition education. You might ask, why are refined foods causing so many health problems? Well, if you look at the labels on most breads, pastas, bagels, chips, pizza crust, you'll find only one or two grams of fiber. Today, the average person consumes 12 grams of fiber per day. You know, in the past, they consumed 150 to 300 grams of fiber per day. So why is fiber important and why have food companies taken the fiber out? When we come back, Cara is going to share that information. So we'll be back in a minute. FM 107.1. Laugh along. I'm over your lies, and I'm over your games. I'm over your asking me. Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. I'm Kara Carper, nutrition educator and nutritionist. And I'm here with Darlene Kavist, licensed nutritionist. Joining, joining us is Joan Ifland, who is an expert in refined food addiction. You know, before break, we were looking at the amount of fiber in food today compared to 150 years ago. Well, fast food is one thing that is actually fiber-less food. Uh-oh, did we lose? Uh, maybe. Joan? <laughs> Are you there, Joan? <laughs> Hopefully she'll call right back. Yeah, she will. <laughs> so, Well, you know, fast food has no fiber. Um, and what food companies do is they remove the fiber to make it more shelf-stable. So what that means is that it can sit on the shelf for a longer period of time and not spoil. So fiberless food is fast to eat and fast to cook. So, you know, think of a saltine cracker. You know, it kind of melts in your mouth without chewing. No fiber. But, and then think about a, a celery stick. That's got tons of fiber. So, you know, have you ever overeaten celery? So what about a saltine cracker? You know, you open a sleeve of saltine crackers and you put butter on them. A couple of things that Joan was saying, both very addicting, the cracker, the salt, and the butter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Dar, I think I think it was Michael Pollan who was quoted as saying, you know, you can figure out if you're hungry by saying, are you hungry for an apple? And if the answer is no... You're not really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joan, are you back online with us? I think maybe not yet. Something happened. So, hello. Oh, oh there you oh, are. Hello, Hi, Joan. Good. You're back with us. Yes. Great. Okay. So, um, I think somehow we lost connection there just for a little yes. bit, but but well, we're glad you called back. Yep. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, Joan, um, you know, we were talking earlier in the show about sweetened beverages and mm-hmm. soda. And I believe you wrote an article earlier this year about sweetened beverages, and I'm wondering if you can share the connection that you found with soda and juice to diabetes. Yes, this is a wonderful research done by the Harvard School of Public Health, Frank Hugh and Walter Willett. They um, they did a, a meta-review of all the evidence, and they came to the conclusion 
that there is enough evidence to draw a new conclusion, which is that sweetened beverages are related to diabetes, and they believe that they're particularly um, effective in creating diabetes because of the liquid delivery system. And uh, that that was an important finding. So, you know, when you're talking about that, do you, do you remember... You know, was it like a 20% increase or was it, you know, an 80% increase? In I the don't pe- remember. Okay. Well, the way those meta-reviews work is, is that they, they have very stringent criteria for the studies that they selected, um, and, you know, and they, they just read each study. Oh, I know the statistic that you're asking about, and I don't know the answer. Well, we did our homework and we were, we know what it was. It was 83% increase. Okay. A higher risk of developing diabetes for the people that drink sodas, you know. Well, it does make us wonder. I mean, we can, we can also talk about public policy issues here. It was so clear and such a uh, prestigious, accountable institution. It's the Harvard School of Public Health. Why does one school in this country have a soda or sweetened beverage machine in yes, the school? Exactly. So that's just um there's my plug for public policy. <laughs> well we agree with you there. Well, yeah. you know, and on the topic of developing diabetes, there's also the chance of gaining weight, right? Oh, it's not yeah, and the thing about a soda, I think it's quite similar to a cigarette in terms of how long it lasts in the body. So people use cigarettes periodically through the day. You had a a pack-a-day habit. And now there are people with um, a a pack-a-day, you know, a six-pack of soda per day habit. Wow, that's a a great comparison. Well, it's because there's, there's a lift and then a crash. There's a high and a crash. And people reach for addictive substances in the crash. They reach for addictive substances to avoid withdrawal. And that's another of the seven criteria. That's, that's, you know, are you using a substance to nourish yourself or are you using a substance to prevent a negative consequence? So people have reported to me that they will pick up a soda to calm themselves so that they're not agitated or they're not irritable. That's not a nutritional issue. Or they'll pick up a soda because they need an energy boost. And, of course, that's... You know, it's contrary because you get that energy boost, but then you're dropped off to a point lower than where you started. So it's 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 a powerful addictive um, delivery mechanism, those sodas. Well, you know, even, Joan, when you're talking about it, people will pick up a soda or a cookie or whatever the addictive substance is and to get to feel more calm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it isn't very long la- to last very long, is it? No, no. And, and really, if you look at some numbers, like people eat 10 times a day or they're in contact with refined carbohydrates 10 times a day, um, then it, then the parallel with smoking becomes stronger. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. see that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. an addictive pattern of use, mm-hmm. grazing. Yes. We call it grazing, but it's it's very much like smoking. Yes. Very interesting. Very, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. So go, go ahead, Well, Car. Dar, we were, you know, I know before break we were talking about diet soda. And Joan, you, you were referring to a study um, 
where this, the soda had saccharin. But we're what? just wondering, because there's so many diet sodas out there that have aspartame. Mm-hmm. And what's the relationship between that and fasting glucose and weight and diabetes? Well, I think that the the more interesting reaction is in the brain. Okay. We have so much research about brain reactions to refined foods. 25 years ago, the pharmaceutical companies went after two markets. We had that new brain scan technology, and they said to themselves, gee, now we can see how to intervene in these neurological processes. So they funded the heck out of those two fields. And it wasn't very long before the researchers in in both fields looked at each other's research and said, oh, my goodness, we're looking at exactly the same brain processes. We're looking at activation of dopamine, serotonin, opiate, endorphin pathways in addictions and in obesity. So, yes, the I think that food addiction is one of the one of the more powerful addictions because it also involves uh, unstable blood glucose. So, what um, what we can we can say about that is that. The pancreas can be conditioned to release insulin by the suggestion Hmm. of a sweetener. Okay. So I can start to even think about eating something very sweet, and I can get low blood sugar from that. Okay. Because I wake up the pancreas, the pancreas becomes concerned that a sweetener is on its way, and we know that high blood glucose is fatal. So the the brave pancreas is on the job, and it says, oh, sweetener's coming. I'm going to start getting that insulin out there. Well, if it's an artificial sweetener, of course, you never get the um, elevated glucose in the bloodstream. But because the pancreas has been alerted and woken up and conditioned, you now have insulin in the bloodstream, which is pushing blood glucose down and creating cravings. Yes. That's the key about that low blood sugar is that it creates a very powerful craving because, of course, that's another way. You know, it's, it, low blood sugar is also fatal. It's lethal. So that you have that addictive mechanism going on in the bloodstream, but then in the brain you have um, elevated dopamine levels, serotonin levels. You have all of those addictive pathways alerted. Another great study was done by a researcher in Oregon where he um, measured the dopamine activity of a study participant when she was drinking a chocolate milkshake versus a tasteless solution. So he charted the amount of dopamine release as she was drinking the chocolate milkshake. She went home, and then a couple of days later she came back, and they put her in the brain scan machine again, And they asked her just to think about the milkshake. And what was remarkable is that the dopamine release was significantly higher. So it's as if the brain, this addicted, you know, maladapted brain now, is so interested in getting these substances that it will create the motivation, it will create more sort of high and excitement around getting the person motivated to go get the substance than actually using the substance. 
That is so, so interesting. It is. So, Joan, we're going to have to take another quick break. But, sure. you, know, when, you know, for listeners, you know, when we're talking about dopamine, what Joan is talking about is that it, that is just a chemical that allows your cells to talk to one another. And we think of it as being a part of your brain chemistry, but it is actually throughout your body. And we're going to talk, we've got a lot of questions when we come back on dopamine. So we'll be back in a minute. And if you have questions for Joan today, our number is 651-641-1071. And we'll be back in a minute. FM 107.1. Laugh along. Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. We're having a great discussion today about food addiction. It's just so interesting with our guest, Joan Ifland, who's the founder of the Refined Food Addiction Research Association. You know, as I work daily with clients, I'm continually made aware of the struggles people are having about their eating. I kind of leave every day kind of going, wow, it's amazing the struggles people are having. You know, when we realize the simple fact that Refined foods never leave to lead to any satisfaction, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like clients, they blame themselves and not the food companies for their out of control eating, basically. Yeah. You know? And so, Joan, while we were on break, we were told that um, someone called in and you were you had mentioned there are six addictive food substances and sugar's one of them. And they're just wondering if you could repeat the other five for sure. us. So sugars and sweeteners are are the first. Flour, any carbohydrates that's been ground into a powder is a flour. Caffeine, salt, cooking fats, and dairy. Okay, thank you. I know that's everything that was in the cookie, right? (laughs) So when you say, Joan, when you say cooking fats, are you talking about olive oil or are you talking about Crisco? Well, I'm really talking about fats that have been heated to a high temperature. There's something that happens to the um, the molecular structure of the fat, and the body does not derive satisfaction from it. So it it seems like it leaves the person a craving. So then you're really talking what we call refined oils, basically. Yes. Yeah. Like okay. vegetable oils. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and even some animal fats. Um, we'll hear reports of people who sit down to a steak and they eat the fat and leave the meat. <laughs> so it can be also an animal fat. Okay. Oh. And, you know, it... certainly um, sour cream, cheese, ice cream. There's certainly the high-fat dairy. Mm-hmm. Uh, those cause problems for people. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, and the the way I think about this is, is I look at the seven addictive behaviors, and then if I see that people are choosing a particular food when they're in those behaviors that indicate loss of control, then that is the methodology that we're developing to distinguish addictive from non-addictive foods, and then we get this great correlation to the national consumption patterns. So the foods that we see being selected in addictive uh, behavior, eating behavior, are also the foods that appear to be leading the obesity epidemic. Okay. Makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple of callers on the line. Sure. Good morning, uh, Shar. Welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition, and thanks for waiting for so long. 
Well, you know, thank you so much to Nutritional Weight and Wellness. I was the one that called with the parathyroid Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And I met with Wendy, and I went off of all dairy, sugar, everything that you just mentioned. I was already off of caffeine, and I've never really liked sodas. But it's changed my life, and I only saw her November 25th. I know you just called in. <laughs> and I'm so proud that I can leave all these things behind because sugar was a, a treat from my, even from my grandma. Okay. She'd make cookies and donuts and... Mm-hmm. To break those... Those darn um, grandmas. They'll get you every time. You're no, <laughs> I try not to do that with my grandchildren. <laughs> but I can't tell you how proud I am of being so strong. I went through Thanksgiving. Not a piece of pie, no, no jello, nothing. Good for you. I yeah. feel that's so good. You know, I think it is because you are feeling so good. And that's what always keeps people eating right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to do it on my own, but that two-hour session with Wendy really gave me the information that I, I truly, truly needed. And I like my little notebook of information. I've shared it with other friends of mine, too. Mm-hmm. And well, thank you so much. Oh, I just thanks, love Char. this show, and <laughs> you've made such a difference in my life. Thank you very much. Oh, we appreciate the call. call. Okay, thank call. you. Yep. You know, um, you know, and I think Shar has a good point. If she needs, she needed the information. She needed to meet with someone, mm-hmm. and she really needs. You know, in a month or so, she is. It's like people need support and follow up and mm-hmm. encouragement, and because all these, look, you know, look at those six addictive foods. They're all over, aren't they? I mean, well, they're every, every place. Yeah, every fast food restaurant serves some combination of those six substances. Exactly. If you take away the appearance and just look at the ingredients, they're all combinations of those six substances. The interior aisles of the grocery store have products that, you know, 98% of them have those substances in them. And it's getting worse. It is getting worse, you know, yes. Products that used to have, uh, you used to be able to find good examples that didn't have a refined substance now do, like mustard. Mustard used to be about 10% sweetened, and now it's about 90% sweetened. Oh, my gosh. So it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to find products in the grocery store that don't have refined ingredients. So, Joan, let's take another caller here. Mm-hmm. Good morning, Greg. Welcome to Dishing Up Nutrition. Greg? Yes, here I am. Good. You have a question, right, or addiction? Yes, uh, I'm very familiar with a lot of the sugar addictions and flour and all those types of things. And my wife and I are really good with our family and our kids uh, about keeping really solid on these, uh, away from these types of foods and on the whole foods. But I have a severe addiction to coffee. Um, I have a tendency every morning I can't really do anything until I have my cup of coffee. I typically have one or two cups of coffee a day and, and typically in the morning. What are your viewpoints on caffeine and coffee addiction? Well, I um, advocate tapering. So the first morning you you make your regular coffee, but you substitute one tablespoon of uh, decaf coffee. And then the next day, two tablespoons substitute and, and, on, go on, and so on until you get to 100% decaf. And then you start tapering off towards an herbal tea. And it is, even when you you take that last sip, it's a pretty 
difficult withdrawal. It's not that four-day withdrawal of refined carbohydrates. It's more like a three-week withdrawal, and, and you're really sleepy the whole time. It's less severe, though. The headache is less severe. You can take, um, you can take caffeine in a tablet form to, um, to transition off the caffeine so that you break that association with a hot drink. But um, the remarkable thing about finally getting off of caffeine is that when I remember for myself when I woke up the morning that I had finished withdrawal, I was alert and ready to go. And I thought that when you wake up in the morning and you're sleepy, it's because you're waking up in the morning. Well, that that's, wasn't the case. I was waking up in the morning sleepy because I was in caffeine withdrawal. Okay. So actually, after getting off caffeine, I was much more alert, much more energetic. So caffeine is, is a, it's a false friend. I think that's a great. I mean, mm-hmm. your answer is just great, Joan. You know, it's just going to take a lot, you know, several, three weeks, really, to get off of it. Mm-hmm. Two and, and a half to, to three weeks. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that sounds great. You know what? We have to take another quick break. You're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. You know, if you want to learn more about real food, join us this January and take our Weight and Wellness Series. Starting the week of January 11th, we'll have classes in 12 convenient locations. You know, we're bringing the classes to your community for your convenience. We can even bring them to your workplace. Just ask us. As nutrition educators, we understand the seriousness of our nation's health crisis. Real food is the only real answer. So check out our website for a location near you, weightandwellness.com. You know, here's a great comment from a class member in our last series. And this is what she said. No question, this was the best $225 I ever spent. There is not a person alive that would not benefit from this series. And we'll be back in a minute. Living Life Out Loud on FM 107.1. Laugh along. Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. Joining us today is Joan Ifland, who wrote a book called Sugar and Flour, How They Make Us Crazy, Sick, and Fat, and What to Do About It. So, Joan, before we get too much further into the show, can you tell people how to find your book and if they want more information on your research, what your website is? Okay, thank you. The book is at Amazon.com, Sugars and Flowers, How They Make Us Crazy, Sick, and Fat by Joan Ifland. I have two websites. I have a commercial website that really focuses on how to work the food plan, and that's sugarsandflowers.com. And then for the science, which I think is fascinating, people can go to refinedfoodaddiction.org. If they want help with food addiction, they can go to foodaddictionprofessionals.org, and that's the website of the Society of Food Addiction Professionals. And so are there lots of ways to get help. Thank you so much. Are there professionals throughout the country for this? Yes, there are. You know, it's so interesting, but uh, really in the early 1990s, food addiction was treated in hospital settings. And then someone wrote an article saying the disease did not exist and the insurance companies seized the opportunity to stop paying for it. Uh, 
Oh, what year was that? This was this was in the early 1990s, but the practitioners from those hospitals went out and became solo practitioners. So are they tend are they tend to be nutritionists or do they well, tend you know, to be? Well, it's all over the lot. Okay. Um, there are MSWs. There are. Um, it seems like we better join. Yes. Yes. So um, last year, or. Yes, about this time last year, we formed the Society of Food Addiction Professionals. They've all just been working independently, but they know each other. And we had our first conference uh, last January, and we looked at promising practices in the field. We had a number of different panels. This year, we're doing something so exciting. We are uh, going to develop the descriptions of the seven addictive behaviors as they manifest in eating. So this will be material that we will use to write an assessment manual so that we can begin to migrate this knowledge and experience and expertise out of this group of food addiction professionals and into mainstream health professionals. So it's a very, very exciting conference this year. It'll be at the end of January here in Houston, and anyone with knowledge or experience with food addiction is very welcome to attend. Well, I think we better attend that one. Oh, I'd <laughs> and, love to have you. So, Joan, is is are you making any progress in having insurance companies pay for services for food addiction? Well, the um, the first thing I think that needs to happen is the American Psychiatric Association needs to recognize this disease in its diagnostic manual. Until you have a very high caliber professional organization endorsing the existence of the disease, the insurance companies are not going to cover it. Okay. So we do have, Nora Vokoff, who's the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, has done some of the most brilliant research in this field. And she is, I understand she is working to get some of that research translated into um, diagnostic material. So, you know, it's just like tobacco research. There was a 20-year period in there in the 1970s, 80s, early 90s, when a tremendous amount of very strong research was being generated, but it was not reaching the public because the tobacco companies were forced off of TV and into print. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that those media outlets were reluctant sure. to report on that research, and we're in that very same situation now. Yes, we are. So yes. I'm really grateful in, in fact, to you all for, for having this topic on your show. Great. So, June, we have, Joan, we have to take another quick break. You're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. You know, if you're struggling with a sleep problem, I'd like to direct you to a short TV program called Nutrition for Sleep with Cassie Weenus registered dietitian. She's a consular at Nutritional Weight and Wellness. And you can catch this special sleep show on channel um, 15. That's Suburban Channel 15. You know, look for Knowledge for Wellness. This show will be broadcast on Tuesday, December 8th at 6 p.m. And then it's going to be rebroadcast Saturday, December 12th at high noon. So we'll be back in a minute. Living Life Out Loud on FM 107.1. Laugh along. Can we forget about the things I said when I was drunk? 
Welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. Food addiction is a very serious problem, and all the nutritionists and counselors at Nutritional Weight and Wellness are available to give you the nutritional guidance that you need in order to be comfortable with your food choices. So give us a call. Call our office for an appointment today, 651-699-3438. We have about two minutes left, and so I just wanted to tell people really quickly what our nutritionists would recommend, just in a nutshell, to prevent some of this addict, the addictive pattern for refined foods and sugars. So eating real food, and that means real protein, eggs, turkey, fish, real carbohydrates, mainly vegetables, and real fats like olive oil, avocados, and nuts. And Joan, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but could you just tell us what you would recommend to avoid this pattern? Yes, um... I think this is a very common pattern. Uh, people eat, you know, eat the wrong foods because they have cravings for them, and cravings are really symptomatic of an of an addiction. So, you know, we ha- we do have six classes of addictive foods, and classic addiction treatment is to get abstinent from them. Not everybody needs the same degree of abstinence, but we would start off eliminating the the refined sugars and and flours certainly. And then maybe in about six months, we would tackle caffeine. Mm-hmm. And then we would watch for what we, sort of, what we call sliding over into new addictions. So we would be focused on the seven behaviors, um, eating more than you intend, attempts to cut back, missing events, spending time, avoiding withdrawal, eating more than you used to of a substance, um, and eating in spite of knowledge of, of consequences. So we would focus on those behaviors in combination with with getting people abstinent from those refined refined carbohydrates. Now I'm a big advocate of including unrefined carbohydrates in a recovery food plan, such as rice, sweet potatoes, winter squash, peas, mm-hmm. beans, because those are great sources. I mean, we do need glucose. Mm-hmm. I mean, we lower run on glycemic glucose. examples. So those are those are, are starches which, in combination with the proteins that you mentioned, and vegetables or low sugar fruits, would be and a bit of fat, a good quality fat, would be absorbed slowly over four to five hours, as opposed to refined carbohydrate, which would be absorbed in twenty minutes. Mm. So, for example, for breakfast, we would say a, a classic starter breakfast is a cup of oatmeal. Uh, two eggs, um, and possibly, are we, are we still there? I got no <laughs> deeds to do, no promise to keep. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep. Let the morning time drop all its petals on me.